0: Find, please, in your copy of Scripture, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in just a few minutes at verse 18, Genesis 2, 18. Before we read, just a few personal notes. Carrie and I I got engaged on November the 17th, 1982 on a Caribbean beach. I was um, a missionary journeyman and She had come down to stay with the Richard and Barbara Clements missionaries and the Clements and Buck and Isla Mae Smith and Carrie and I went to a a beach house and on that morning November the 17th I took Carrie Williams uh, to the beach and asked her to marry me and she said yes. And then I stayed in Venezuela while she made all the wedding arrangements, picked out all the plates and the cups and all that and I was grateful that she was doing that, and not me. And then uh, on July the 23rd, 1983, at the 12th Street Baptist Church in Gadsden, Alabama, we said "I do." That was 37 plus years ago, from Kentucky to Nigeria, back to Kentucky to Virginia, and now to uh, for us, Sweet Home, Alabama. We have uh, we've been married 37 plus years. We have three kids and was that well thank you Dennis I appreciate that as um, where was I, I got so, uh, 37 plus years and uh, three kids and uh, four grandkids I hope a growing number of grandchildren we keep asking for more and um, yet we've never had the talk Carrie and I never have had the talk. The talk, by the talk, I mean, you know that talk where we decide who's the boss, who's the one who is the undisputed leader, the one who's going to be the, make all the decisions, who's going to be the, you know, the head honcho uh, at home. So this morning, I thought this would be a good time for us to all have that talk together. So we're going to have the talk. Well, kind of, sort of, we're going to have the talk. This is the last uh, as Shelley mentioned the last in this 5 week series during August when we've been celebrating you know the 19th uh, amendment the the 100th anniversary August 18 of the 19th amendment which gave uh, women the right to vote. We've been celebrating that by looking at women in the Bible, by looking at what the Bible says about women. We looked at Deborah and we looked at Holden. Last week, we looked at the role of women in the church and what the Bible says about that. This week, we're going to talk about marriage. One might argue that uh, I put this one off to the very end. Uh, A friend of mine had been married. I I hadn't seen him in a while. This was back in Kentucky. I had not seen him uh, since he'd gotten married. And I asked him, so how is married life? And he answered, it's complicated. <laughs> I didn't know whether to, to get counseling for him or to laugh. I wasn't sure how to respond. That being married, he said, is complicated. And he's, he's right, it is complicated. Let's look at the first couple in Genesis chapter 2. And again, we're going to read the beginning at verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man, that'd be Adam, to be alone. I will make a helper. Now that's a translation of the Hebrew word Azer. I will make a helper for him. Azer, make a middle note, we're going to come back to that. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. In Genesis 2.18, Eve is created as a helper uh, to Adam. It it would be easy for us to think of that word helper as a subordinate, as an assistant. But that is not the meaning of "azer." The Bible interprets the Bible. And by that I mean if we don't know exactly what someone part means, we can read the other parts and they shed light on that part. And that helps us with the translation of Azur. The interpretation of that word. For the Bible uses it often, many times in the Hebrew Scriptures. The word "azor" is used in reference to our Creator and our Father. "azor" is used often to describe God Himself. Here's an example. One reason, well, the reason, I think, I asked Billy if we could sing Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing this morning, or at least read it. Was that it, it? It has that beautiful line: Here I raise mine Ebenezer, here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. Ebenezer means stone, Eben of help, Azer. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, I wouldn't have gotten here. Without God, 1 Samuel 7:12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, "Thus far the Lord has helped me." In other words, I wouldn't have gotten here uh, if the Creator had not helped me here. Another example you might remember this name: Exodus 18:4 says that Moses and Zipporah had two children, two sons. The first was named Gershom, and I'm quoting now, and the other was named Eleazar. For Moses said, my father's God was my helper. Eli, Azar, Eli, God, Eli, Eli. Remember that word, Eli, Eli? God. The words of Jesus, Eli, God, Azar, God is my helper. Moses, if you read his story up to that point, he had several mistakes and made several missteps. And he thought, I would not have gotten to this place had God not been my Azar, my helper. So now we, we're back to Adam and Eve. So when God makes Eve Adam's azer, it's not his assistant. It is not his subordinate. We could read it like this. Adam was a helpless creature. He couldn't boil water or tie his shoes if he had had shoes. He just was in big trouble and God made an azar for him. He was helpless. He needed help. And God made somebody with the strength and the skill to help poor Adam. Can I get an amen from the women? There you go. Biggest amen I've gotten in five years. Azar, with not his subordinate, not his assistant, but the one with strength and skills to support him, to to help him, to do things he could not do otherwise. When we first see Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis, they are equals in every way. Both bear the image of God. Both are called to oversee and manage creation. There is no, in the early pages of Genesis, there is no hierarchy based on gender. And then, and then comes the fall, the rebellious disobedience of Adam and Eve. And in that moment, that catastrophic moment, evil came rushing into the world, just like in the waters of the Midwest, those river waters have now rolled beyond their shores into places they ought not be. Evil came rushing into the world, into a place it didn't belong, and everything changed, including, including, The relationship between husbands and wives. Genesis 3, 16. Now this is post fall, this is just after the fall. To the woman, God said, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So after the fall, there's a reordering of roles. Women would now tend to long for an emotional intimacy with their husbands that for some would be far too elusive. And for, in some cases, would result in their openness to abuse. Husbands, He will rule over you. Men would have, some men would have an illegitimate tendency to want to dominate their wives. God would not let that stand forever. Jesus came to reorder things. Jesus came to set right our vertical relationship, the relationship between humans and God, but he also came to set right our horizontal relationships, relationships between people, including the relationships between husbands and wives. Jesus changed everything for women. He elevated them to an unprecedented place. He listened to them. He valued them. Women sat at his feet. Women cried at his cross, Uh, women were granted the opportunity to make the greatest announcement ever given to humans, and that is that Jesus was alive. Everything changed for women. By the time Jesus ascended at the end of his ministry on earth, the, the gender equality ship had sailed. The gender equality genie was out of the bottle and would not go back. The SSS gender equality had set sail and nothing would ever be the same. It was beginning to look like early Eden again. Jesus came to reorder that relationship between husbands and wives. But Travis, doesn't the Bible say that the husband is the head of the wife and that the wife is to be submissive to her husband? Yes, it does. It says that multiple times. When the Christian wives in those early churches heard those words that that men is to be the head of the house and women are to submit, they must have yawned. That was not exactly a news flash to them. That's all they'd ever heard. Society always had said that women were in a submissive role. That's all they ever had known. So they were not surprised by that. The husbands, however, must have gasped at what followed. Because what always follows is that men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And that they're to love their wives as they love their own bodies. Now that was a newsflash. That was different. That changed everything. That was revolutionary. That was stunning that men were supposed to love their wives like that. And listen to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4. Listen carefully. This is extraordinary. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and 4. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Already the, the men are about to faint, a marital duty to my wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the s- now the guys would have said, okay, yeah, I get that. Okay, good. But Paul continued, in the same way, the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. That was stunning. Paul is talking about the most intimate of any human relationship. And he's saying to husbands, You don't have authority in this relationship. Your wife does. You yield. Now, she she yields to you, but in the same way, which was so stunning. Husbands, she's, she's the boss, too. In the New Testament, we find that there was a new day for Christian marriages. Everything was different. To that point, societal norms said that that men could sleep around with impunity and treat their wives like property. But in the New Testament comes this message. Not anymore. Henceforth, wives would defer lovingly. And husbands would love deferentially. Wives would defer lovingly. Husbands would love deferentially. And from the outside looking in, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Imagine with me that an exchange student has come to live with you for a year, if you're married. They're part of your family life from meals to, to vacations to family conferences and they go back this this student this young man or young woman goes back home to the home country wherever that is and the first night back his or her family is quizzing this young man or this young woman and they ask so this was a Christian home right yes so tell us in that Christian home which was the boss which was the dominant one? Was it the husband or the wife? They're talking about your family, remember. I think the best answer would be for him or her to say, you know, I, I'm not sure. They, they deferred to one another and, and each did what they were best at and they respected one another. You know, I'm not sure which one was the dominant one? I think that's the best answer. Quite frankly, I think that's the most biblical answer where someone come to come and live in your family and notice your marriage. I, I think the best response would be, gee, I'm not, I'm not real sure which one is the dominant one. The relationship between Christian spouses ought to be based on mutual deference and respect, not on male domination and rule. Which brings us to a really difficult part of this conversation. There is a dark side to male headship. There's a dark side to male headship. That includes churches in which men assume unquestioned authority and leadership in their church. And let me be real clear. There are lots of really good churches where only men lead There are lots of good churches where there would be no women deacons and no women ministers and all that. Lots of good churches where they respect women and value women and would never mistreat women. But there are enough that there's a problem. There are enough churches in which women are dismissed and devalued and even hurt. Beth Moore, the biggest name in women's ministry wrote that some of her sisters, and I'm quoting now, have suffered horrific abuses within the power structures of, the, of our Christian world. You may remember the Church Two movement. It followed the Me Too movement. The Church Two movement had women coming out of the woodwork saying, I was devalued, I was dismissed, I was belittled, I was abused. Again, there are a lot of good churches where that doesn't happen, but there are enough that there's a problem in the Christian world, a dark side to male headship. But the most dangerous place for male headship is probably behind the closed doors of some Christian homes. The most dangerous place for this practice of male headship is probably behind the closed doors of some Christian homes. Please understand me, again, there are countless husbands who see themselves as as the leader of the family, who love their wives and and respect their wives and would never in any way belittle or hurt their wives. But there are enough that there's a real problem. Kevin Giles wrote the book that was released just a few weeks ago titled The Headship of Men and the Abuse of Women. It includes startling data, stunning statistics, including some Baptists, where men have seen their role as head, as a license to belittle, to mistreat, and to abuse their wives. Besides the data and the statistics, he tells stories. For example, Kevin Giles, the author, was pastor several years ago when... One evening at eight o'clock, the doorbell rang. He went to the door, and there stood a young woman with her three year old daughter. He knew the young woman, she was in his church. She and her husband, from the outside, had this perfect, happy marriage. They were up and coming professionally, up and coming in the church. The husband was a great student. He said, a great student of Scripture. From the outside looking in, they were the perfect Christian family. But here she stood at 8 o'clock in the evening with her little girl, both of them upset. He invited her in. He and his wife sat with them as she told their story. Earlier that evening, he had hit her, and it wasn't the first time. For the first several months, she said, he was respectful and loving. But as time went on, he became increasingly controlling and even violent. She was telling the story when there was a violent knock at the front door. The pastor went to the door and there stood her husband. Is my wife here? He demanded. She is here, said the pastor, and you tell her to come out. The Pastor wouldn't tell him, wouldn't tell her that. The husband continued, the Bible says the husband is the head of his wife and she should obey him. My wife needs to come home. When the pastor refused to let him in, the man became seriously agitated. He finally left only after the pastor said he was going to call the police, but not after another lengthy tirade about men being the head of the house. Giles also tells the story of Ruth Tucker. Now, I heard of Ruth Tucker. I read Ruth Tucker years and years ago. An award-winning, best-selling book on Christian missions titled From Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya. A wonderful book. And so when I see the name Ruth Tucker, I I just imagine this woman that lived a dream life. She was teaching at a seminary. a successful author and scholar. But not long ago, she wrote a book titled Black and White Bible, Black and Blue Wife. And she said, during his violent rages, now she's in a Christian marriage. During his violent rages, my ex-husband often hurled biblical texts at me as though the principal tenet of scripture was, wives, submit to your husbands. He spat the words out repeatedly, beating me over the head, at least figuratively, with his black and white Bible. His hitting and punching and slamming me, however, were anything but figurative, nor were, nor were his terror-loaded threats. I felt trapped and feared for my life while outwardly disguising bruises with long sleeves and clever excuses, pretending ours was a happy marriage. If you combine a man who's insecure and controlling and wants to prove he's macho with those verses in the Bible that say women are to submit to their husbands... With a pastor who loves to beat that drum, and that is a dangerous combination. You add to that you've got a a husband who's increasingly controlling and insecure, and wants to prove he's macho with with those verses in the Bible. With a pastor that just always talks about that. With a woman now, who feels like she has very little value, who has a low sense of self worth, and that's a potentially lethal combination. I'm going to speak real plain. So, whether you're watching live streaming or in this room, men, don't you dare misuse the Bible. Don't you dare misuse the Bible to belittle, to hurt, to abuse your wives. You do not have a license to treat her with anything other than utmost respect. Let me speak plainly to women, whether you're watching online or in the room. If you are being hurt, if you are being belittled, devalued, if you're being mistreated or abused, that is not what God intends for you. The simplest answer I know is the number 211. If you will call 211 there those are professionals who can help you get the help that you need 211 Whatever you understand about those verses regarding husbands and wives God never intended you to be mistreated or abused you are his queen you are his creation Men don't you misuse the Bible and women don't you let them Someone said that um, a marriage is in trouble when a man shows his worst side to his better half. Let me me illustrate that. Will uh, Campbell is a wonderful writer of homespun tales. He wrote of a fictitious big-name preacher. This is fiction, but a fictitious big-name preacher named Dr. Roger Hagen. In this story, Hagen was the featured preacher at a big convention. His wife, Glenda, was seated on the platform behind him. The title of his sermon was, The True Christian Home. And his wife was dumbfounded by what he said. The preacher described leaving the church at the end of long Sundays and said, I'm going to make a confession to you this morning. That's That's my preacher voice. I'm going to make a confession to you this morning, my wife and I always come home together. Behind him, though, his wife was thinking, I'm not believing he's saying these things. He described their relationship as if it were a thrilling love affair. All along, she was thinking, I can't take this. I'm going to scream. He said in his best preacher voice, I know what a Christian home is. His wife thought, oh, Jesus, help me. The Christian home is a house where God reigns. That's G-A-W-D, he thundered. Please, Roger, please, she thought. The Christian home is where God's family plan is the only plan. Roger, no, don't do it, Roger. Roger. It went on and on about the Christian home, quoting scripture about the value of a good woman. If I don't go now, I never will, she thought. I'm quoting. Linda Hagen got up from her seat on the platform. She strolled quickly to the pulpit, thrust a note in her husband's hand, then turned, walked down the steps and through the crowd, some of whom appeared momentarily stunned the preacher got a quick note or a quick glance at the note the last three words were enough, Roger. Goodbye. When Glenda Hagan was among friends, she tearfully confessed a home life and a husband stained by hypocrisy. Someone suggested if you want to know a man's character, don't ask his Sunday school teacher ask his wife so men and women boys and girls success significance status esteem come not from claiming your place come not from establishing yourself as the head Greatness comes from removing the towel around your waist and washing the feet of people. Greatness comes in respecting and loving and serving people, even if it is your spouse. In just a moment, um, Esther's going to play for us to reflect. There'll be a closing prayer, and I'm going to wait down front for those who want to talk about being part of our church or following Jesus. That would be my great honor.